What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Hey friends, thanks for joining a podcast. I want to tell you about something really new and exciting called Patreon.com slash BP Show. It's a great way to get uh, exclusive interviews with newsmakers, voicemails, personalized videos, political commentary, and early access to a special podcast called The Making of Bernie Sanders. Go to patreon.com slash BP show. Patreon.com slash BP show. Broadcasting around the nation, on your radio, on your TV, and online. This is The Bill Press Show. Richard Nixon says, I'm not a crook. Donald Trump says, I'm not a racist. They're both wrong. What do you say? Hello, everybody, and a happy Martin Luther King Day here on this Monday. Monday, January 15. So good to see you today. Thank you for joining us on the Bill Press Show, celebrating the great life and legacy and contribution of Dr. Martin Luther King, uh, the champion not only of uh, African-Americans, the champion of all working-class Americans. Uh, and remember, uh, the war, the great march on Washington was against economic injustice as well as racial injustice. We salute his life, his legacy, his great contribution to this country on this Monday, January 15. And we welcome you to the program as we uh, keep up with all the news of the day. And there is a lot of news today. In fact, over the weekend, boy, if you were in in Hawaii, the scare of your life in the 50th state when a missile alert was issued yesterday saying there's a North Korean missile aiming for the Hawaiian Islands. It was, as we know, a mistake, but it put the fear of God in a lot of people and took them 38 minutes before they issued the all clear. Donald Trump saying doesn't look like there's going to be any deal on DACA, and he blames the Democrats for that. Uh, And Donald Trump now accused of paying a former mistress, well, at least a stripper with which he had at least one big fling, Her name is Stormy Daniels, paying her $130,000 last October toward the end of the campaign. $130,000 in keeping quiet. To be clear, she is not a stripper. She's a very famous porn star. Oh, a porn star. star. Not that I would know, but I feel that facts matter. Uh, (laughs) Democracy dies in the darkness. Uh, That is true. And Stormy Daniels is her. Screen name. I don't think that's her real name. I don't think that's her Christian name. Exactly. (laughs) Anyhow, lots to talk about. And as always, we want to hear from you on the news of the day. Send us your comments on Twitter, at BP Show, at BP Show. But first, 
This is the Full Court Press. All right, just a couple of other stories making news here on a Monday. Bill, you're not a big Starbucks guy. I know you don't drink a lot of Starbucks. Uh, I don't drink coffee, don't drink and coffee. I don't like Starbucks. Well, some people do drink Starbucks, and Starbucks is trying to curb the amount of waste that they generate. Now, Starbucks That's has... That's good. Uh, uh, they do their, these th- seasonal cups, right? Like they do their cups at mm-hmm. Christmas, and they have little messages that they put on them. Well, here's what they're going to start doing. This starts in the UK, and they're going to be testing it out and seeing if they're going to roll it out around the world. But they're going to start charging you for your little cardboard cup that they give you. So really? if you get a coffee, they're going to charge you for the coffee, but then also charge you for the cup. Now, this is all a way to try and get people to bring their own cups into Starbucks, oh. which I guess you can do. I see people do that. Sure, you just yeah. bring your own I've mug seen people in, do that. Right. like a travel mug. They'll fill it up with coffee for you, and they won't charge you. I, as, but in as, effect, they're already charging you for the cup. I mean, the cup of coffee, inclu- uh, the price of the cup of coffee includes paying the barista, yeah, all that stuff. Yeah, I, I don't disagree with that, but I, I was wondering where you stood on that since, you know, it's a good environmental move. It's a good environmental thing, but, you know, let's face it. Most people are not going to come in with their own container. Probably true. You know? Probably true. Probably true. By the way, one other bit of uh, news here in the Full Court Press. Uh, Senator Ben Cardin is running for his— They do better—I'm sorry. I'm just thinking about this. By having recyclable material rather than—because sometimes you get stuff in a Starbucks in a plastic thing, right? Yes. Well, I mean, you know, I mean, if you bring your own in, you get no. it. But uh, they usually—they give everything up. If I get a Starbucks— I got a, a iced tea, which is what I usually get. It's one. Oh yeah, sure. It's like a it's like in a plastic mug, yeah, yeah or a plastic cup, yeah. So, uh, one other quick story: uh, Senator Ben Cardin is running for his third term. He will have a challenger. It will be Chelsea Manning. How about it? Yeah, running for Senate in Maryland. She already has an ad up. We'll play that a little bit later. You got it. Yeah. This is the Bill Press Show. Yes, indeed, uh, Richard Nixon. I'm not a crook. Donald Trump, I'm not a racist. <laughs> Both of them dead wrong. Hello, everybody. It is the Bill Press Show, and here we are on a Monday, January 15. So good to see you today. Thank you for joining us as we together celebrate the life and the legacy of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., one of the greatest Americans of all time. Uh, and his words and his actions and his spirit um, still circulate uh, across the United States of America. Sadly, not everybody is marching in step with Dr. Martin Luther King, including the president of the United States, but the vast majority of American people are, and uh, we are not there yet, but we are still in pursuit of that American dream which he articulated uh, so eloquently, so strongly, so powerfully, uh, words that still move us all. Uh, and it's good to have you with us today, With your, uh, however you're joining us. If you're online, YouTube, youtube.com slash The Bill Press Show. Don't forget, friends, sign up, sign up, uh, and register when you go to, uh, when you're online at youtube.com. It helps us and it helps you because uh, you'll be hearing from us all during the day with our little updates as news occurs during the day. We also welcome all of you watching on Free Speech TV today on part of the DirecTV network nationwide, coast to coast, 
And a great big shout out to our good friends in the Chicago area on WCPT and in Indiana on Indiana Talks. Hello, hello, hello. Lots, lots to cover today with the help of some very good friends, some of your favorites. John Allen from now with NBC News will be here in studio with us, as will Alexi McCammond from Axios and then Eliza Collins from who covers the Congress for USA Today. Boy, the big news starts out in Hawaii, the 50th state, uh, when if you were sitting at home, uh, had the radio on, you were watching television, you were driving in your car with the radio on, you were anywhere with your cell phone nearby, here is what you heard. This is not a drill. If you are indoors, stay indoors. If you are outdoors, seek immediate shelter in a building. Remain indoors well away from windows. This is not a joke. This is it. There is an incoming missile. That's what the people of Hawaii were warned. Uh, The system, the warning system worked. At least the word got out there. But right away, uh, they realized, oops, somebody at the change of shift, they were doing their little routine drill as to what happens if there's a word of an incoming missile, and there were two choices came up on the computer screen, missile alert and missile test. Uh, <clears throat> whoever was there, as the governor of Hawaii tells us, whoever was on duty pushed the wrong button. It was uh, a procedure uh, that occurs at the change of shift where they go through to make sure that um, the system is working and uh, an employee pushed the wrong button. An employee pushed the wrong button. Michael Sullivan was a tourist who happened to be in the Honolulu area describing the scene. There were kids crying all over the place. It was uh, screaming, people going every direction. Yeah. And, you know, the, some of the video I saw, one father trying to persuade his young daughter, it looked like she's about five or six, to get down a manhole in the middle of a street oh, in Honolulu. She didn't want to go down that hole. And he would say, no, honey, you have to go down. You know, I people, really... people running uh, anywhere uh, at the resorts, the, the staff was trying to get people off the beach, out of the water, off the beach. I read know? a great story from someone on Twitter. It was the, crazy. Their parents were in Hawaii at a resort. They were sitting on the beach. And they saw this thing on their phone, so they just said, oh, my God. And then just a couple moments later, the staff from the hotel comes or the resort comes running out and saying, everyone, get inside, get inside. There's 15 to 20 minutes before a missile hits. If it was launched, that's how long it'll take to get here. And everybody starts running, and this guy's parents, who, who he was tweeting about, they said, the father said, look, if there's a missile coming. What a way to go. If there's a missile coming Mm -hmm. and I'm going to die. I'm going to die right here on this beach looking at the ocean, mm-hmm. <laughs> and I'm not going to go into this hotel. Yeah, let's have sex, baby. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. What are you on gonna the do beach. With the time you got left? <laughs> and so there was like a huge fight between him and his wife, and the wife was like, we got to go inside. And I figure if, the, if you're going to go out, what better way no. to go out on a beach arguing with your loved one? <laughs> like, <laughs> there you go. Yeah. Anyhow, it was it was crazy. People were you know running everywhere trying to find any shelter that they could. And the big mystery still is, well, it's not so much a mystery, but there were two mistakes. One was pushing the button in the first place. The second mistake was taking so long to notify people 
that this was a false alarm. It took 38 minutes. Now, the Hawaii Police Department was told right away, don't, you know, don't panic. This was wrong. In, in their internal uh, radio communications, they were informing police officers it's, it's, it's a false, false alert. Okay, we got, we're getting a message. State warning pointing saying it was supposed to be a drill. They sent out the wrong message. They are working on sending out a correction now. But So this was just a drill. Yeah. For the state warning point, they're going to send out a correction message now. They're going to send out a correction message. It took 38 minutes for that uh, correction message uh, to get out there. Uh, and the uh, person who, was, uh, who pushed the wrong button, by the way, he wasn't fired. Uh, he has been reassigned, and the Hawaii officials uh, assure us that they have uh, taken a corrective step that from now on, n- no one person can touch that button. It has to be two people together. Uh, they're thinking that that may uh, <clears throat> uh, it's either going to make it twice as dangerous or twice as safe. We're yeah, not I sure. was going to say, like, <laughs> this could go either way. We're not sure which way that goes, right? I'm but. I'm comforted by the fact that they're taking some steps. I'm a little yeah. upset that it yeah. took this long or mm-hmm. took a, a situation like this to to have it happen. But okay. Uh, now, meanwhile, we can be reassured uh, that everything's going to be okay from now on because Donald Trump says, uh, "Okay, I'm going to uh, I'm going to fix this." We're going to now get involved with them. Uh, I love that they took responsibility. They took total responsibility. Yeah, well, uh, this was a state alert system uh, that 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 went that went wrong. Fortunately, oh, it did not move up to the federal level. Now, just a little pause there for a second. One, the reason that we're told now that it took so long is because the federal emergency management FEMA has to um, get involved in this, and every state has the power to declare, to send out an alert if they get evidence of an incoming missile. But they have to get FEMA's permission to send out the correction. So it took them that long, having alerted the world, and knowing right away it was a mistake, it took them that long to get in touch with FEMA and to get the permission to put out the all-clear. But this does raise a very, very important uh, issue that we've talked about before, and particularly with Joe Cirincioni from the Plowshares Fund, that, you know, in this case, the federal government did not get uh, involved. Uh, there was no federal alert because we have our own, we, the nation, the, the Pentagon, has its own satellite system where we have our own way of detecting any missile that North Korea launches or anything that's headed our way from anywhere, whether it be Russia or North Korea or whatever, uh, and there was no sign of any activity whatsoever. So federal officials did not take this seriously um, at that level. But this is an illustration of the danger that we've got at the federal level because at the federal level, if there is evidence or sign of an incoming missile. You know, that's why that guy carry, follows the president around with the so-called football, where the code is in there. And if word gets to the president that the Pentagon says there is an in, uh, for real, an incoming missile, the president has about 
five minutes, six minutes, maybe at the most seven minutes, to make the decision, and the president and the president alone makes that decision to take us to nuclear war, to launch a nuclear war, to launch a retaliatory strike against an incoming missile, which, again, as in Hawaii, could be a totally false alert. And that has already happened. There are at least a couple of cases, and it wasn't that long ago. In one case, it was a flock of geese, Canada geese, that were picked up by radar, and people thought this was an incoming missile. And the, a, a, uh, the beginning of the alert system was launched, and then people realized it was wrong. What was that was wrong? What it really was. Uh, in another case, out in North uh, North Dakota, somebody in a silo put the wrong tape in the machine, sort of similar to what happened in Hawaii. But the wrong and the and the tape was a simulated missile strike, but it was a fake. It was just, you know something developed for again a test, not the real thing. The tape went in. People see this missile coming. They think it's a real thing, and they started the the alert two system. If that had gotten to the president of the United States, we could have been in a nuclear war. Now, compound that when the guy in charge of the trigger, the guy with his fingers on the button, is a maniac like Donald Trump or somebody quick on the trigger, and God knows what could happen. And easily. I mean, it is a system that is just filled with with the risk and danger to the American people, to civilization, to, to civilization to the human race, uh, to have somebody have that power single-handedly to launch uh, a nuclear war. It's got to change. I don't care whether it's Hillary Clinton or Barack Obama or Bill Clinton or George W. Bush and certainly not Donald Trump. No one person should have that sole and unique power to launch a nuclear war. So, we got the we got we got the you know what scared out of us in Hawaii over the weekend. A lot of people did, but it should be a lesson that we ought to do something about the nuclear um, war, uh, what launching system here uh, in this country. Uh, certainly, Congress, maybe an executive branch of executive committee of Congress or something, but it shouldn't uh, should be involved. It should never be just one single person. What else is going on in the news? Well, there's a lot of news. Donald Trump is in a war on words. Yes, in, in on two levels. He says he still insists that he didn't say those words. He didn't call uh, the, um, the countries of Haiti and El Salvador and certain African-American countries uh, that uh, vulgar term that he was quoted uh, last week. In fact, he was even able to line up some members of Congress. God knows what he paid these Republican senators and what he promised them. Probably they have a new federal highway, I don't know, a new dam, a new airport. They're probably Tom Cotton will have a new airport named after him, you watch, within a year after, uh, after what he said on Sunday. But So David Perdue from Georgia and Tom Cotton came out and said, no, we were in that meeting with Dick Durbin and Lindsey Graham, and we never heard him use that horrible phrase. I didn't hear that word either. I certainly didn't hear mm -hmm. what Senator Durbin has said repeatedly. Mm -hmm. I'm uh, telling you he did not use that word, George, and I'm telling you it's a gross misrepresentation. And Donald Trump himself says, nope, nope, never said it. Did you see what various senators in the room said about my comments? They weren't made. Uh-uh, uh-uh. And by the way, it's, it's interesting now that Donald Trump denies that he used that phrase, right? 
But we also know he was on the phone that night. He's on the phone that same night bragging, talking to friends about using the phrase and saying, how much? How about that? I said this in this meeting, and uh, my base is going to love it. Yeah, bragging about how referring to countries that way would help his base. Now he denies that he ever said it. Uh, and at the same time, he denies that uh, he, what, racist? Me? Oh, no, says Donald Trump. I ain't no racist. No, no, I'm not a racist. I am the least racist person you have ever interviewed. I mean, come on. I mean, how many times have we been over this ground? The least racist person you've interviewed. Uh, This is a person who was sued by the Justice Department uh, for not renting apartments to um, African-Americans. This is the person who fanned the flames of the Central Park Five after these five young teenagers were found not guilty of raping a woman in Central Park. Donald Trump uh, taking out full-page newspaper ads to insist the courts were wrong, they were guilty, and they had to be uh, still uh, rounded up and marched to the and marched to, uh, to prison, if not to death row. This is the same man who praised the white supremacists and the KKK marchers in Charlottesville. This is the same man who called the NFL players sons of bitches from the podium. Um, yeah, the same man who now uh, insists that he is not a racist, um, and the same person who tried, of course, to block all Muslims from coming here, who wants to deport all the Dreamers, who has canceled the program for El Salvadorans. This is a man who has a real problem with uh, any people of color. John Lewis, the great John Lewis, told George Stephanopoulos yesterday, yes, he does believe that uh, Donald Trump is a racist. Uh, George Lewis, uh, John Lewis, rather, in fact, saying... When it comes to the State of the Union uh, this year, his feelings about Donald Trump are so strong that Congressman John Lewis says he's not going to show up. In good conscience, I cannot and will not sit there and listen at him as he gives the State of the Union address. And in the New York Times this morning, Charles Blow, columnist Charles Blow, does a great job every Monday in the New York Times. Charles Blow, speaking about this topic, says, quote, It is not a stretch to say that Trump is racist. It is not a stretch to say that he is a white supremacist. It is not a stretch to say that Trump is a bigot. Uh, Let Donald Trump protest as much as he wants. The uh, evidence is there. And meanwhile, in this war on words, it's not only whether or not he said those words, that phrase referring to poor countries like El Salvador and Haiti and others. Uh, There's also another, now a war on words, and Donald Trump is accusing the Wall Street Journal of fake news. He gave an interview end of last week with the Wall Street Journal where he said something really bizarre about uh, having a great relationship with Kim Jong-un. He wouldn't say whether or not he had talked to Kim Jong-un, but he insists he has a great relationship So here is, from the Wall Street Journal, here is the audio of the president's remark. I probably have a very good relationship with Kim Jong-un of North Korea. 
And again, the reporters were surprised when he said that. And they said, well, Mr. President, does that mean have you talked to him? Uh, and um, and uh, Donald Trump says, well, I'm not going to say that. I'm not going to say that. So now the people were asking, how can he have a good relationship with a guy that he calls Little Rocket Man, the guy that he insults every time you turn around? Kim Jong-un. That guy. Uh, and now the White House is saying the Wall Street Journal deliberately misquoted Donald Trump that he did not say, I have a strong relationship or a good relationship with Kim Jong-un, but I'd have, I apostrophe D have. Now, let's listen to it again. You decide. I probably have a very good relationship with Kim Jong-un of North Korea. Uh, I don't know. I trust my hearing, Peter. I hear I'd. I actually do hear I'd. You, do you really? I do. I, I I hate to give him a win, and I hate to hear and like say that I think Donald Trump is right, but like I, I can hear it either way. But I do hear I'd. I probably have a very good relationship with who? Kim Jong Un. Oh, him. Yeah, uh, him. Yeah. <laughs> North Korea. Uh, I hear I. <laughs> but anyhow. Um, it's still a bizarre thing to say. I, look, I, I, either way, yeah, it's, weird. it's a bizarre thing Either, to say. Even if he does say I'd, it's still kind of a weird thing to say. Right. I can, uh, l- l- let's, let's say, to, to be fair, I can see that the Wall Street Journal would hear that and hear that and listen to that tape over and over again and report it as I probably have a good relationship with Kim Jong-un. But the point is, this was again Donald Trump going out and accusing the Wall Street Journal, not CNN, not the New York Times, right? Not MSNBC, the Wall Street Journal of deliberately misquoting him, calling it the latest example of fake news, which, by the way, uh, was enough to prompt the attention of uh, Senator Jeff Flake from Arizona uh, on, um, I believe it was uh, this week, yesterday, uh, with George Stephanopoulos. He's going to make this same speech on the, and elaborate on the Senate floor on Wednesday in advance of Donald Trump giving out the uh, fake news awards, if he does it this week. He was going to do it two weeks ago, and he never did. Um, at any rate, uh, Jeff Flake saying uh, that all this talk about fake news, all this talk about enemy of the people uh, is not worthy of the president of the United States. Here he is, Senator Flake. You have authoritarians across the world using the term fake news to justify cracking down on their opposition or, or to uh, staunch legitimate debate, uh, that's nothing we should be proud of. And who else uh, used that phrase, enemy of the people? I noted uh, how, how, how bad it is for, for a president to, to take what was popularized by Joseph Stalin, uh, the enemy of the people, to refer to the press. Yep, it is Donald Trump, Joseph Stalin. All right. So we probably got take that as a compliment. We got, he probably does, yeah, because he likes authoritarian figures. Right. Right? Yeah. Joseph Stalin, very tough. Very, very tough. Very tough mm-hmm. politician. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Strong leader. Like my buddy, Vlad Putin. Right. And Duterte from the Philippines. Right. And, and, yeah. and don't forget uh, my, my, my other friend. Kim Jong-un. Oh, yeah. yes, yes. Uh, one other little, uh, before we leave the uh, Donald Trump scene, uh, uh, the, uh, uh, oh, here it is again, the Wall Street Journal, 
reporting uh, late Friday. It was a strange time for that story to come out late Friday. They, the Wall Street Journal reporting that Donald Trump's attorney, Michael Cohen, uh, arranged a deal uh, last o- no last October 2016, toward the end, the very end of the presidential campaign, with uh, a porn star who goes by the name whose screen name is Stormy Daniels. Uh, Peter, you know all the porn stars. Uh, Stephanie, what's her real name? Stephanie. I honestly don't know her real name, but uh, I, Stephanie I know something. of Stormy Daniels. You no, know, Stormy Daniels. Uh, r- reportedly, according to the Wall Street Journal. Uh, Donald Trump uh, had a fling with Stormy Daniels, and uh, he thought that might come back to haunt him. So Michael Cohen arranged a 130,000. Michael Cohen, the president's attorney, uh, announced a 100. Uh, um, uh, paid 130,000 dollars, according to the Wall Street Journal, to Stormy Daniels uh, to remain silent about this, not to talk about her little fling with uh, Donald Trump. So, by the way, who was he married to at the? Oh, this was it happened in two thousand and six, uh, I believe. Yeah, I don't. So, I, was he married? I think to, he was married to Melania at that point. He married. He married Melania in two thousand five. All so, right. So there okay. you go. There you go. I, I knew when I saw the name Stormy Daniels that it was familiar Uh-oh. for uh, that we had talked about it on the show. But she actually in two thousand ten, she had considered running. Against David Vitter, oh, Senator, she's she the was one. the porn star who was going to run against David Vitter in 2010. Now, she never did. There was even a whole website, uh, draftstormy.com, where she had sort of flirted with the idea of running against him, but she never did. So, this now is the second time that we've talked about Stormy Daniels on the Bill Press Show. Uh, <laughs> well, you know, man. Hopefully, there's a third. Uh, uh, yes, yes. <laughs> But what I wonder is now that this story is out there, uh, is she still bound by the code of silence when it comes to uh, uh, her uh, alleged uh, affair with Donald Trump? We'll find out. Yeah. But by the way, she is not accusing him of sexual assault. No, no, no. no. This was uh, reportedly, at any rate, uh, a consensual consensual affair between the two of them. Um, One last little note. The New York Times yesterday, it's interesting, had a... um, a big chart about how Donald Trump's popularity has declined in the last year among almost every voting bloc. Those of you watching on television, you can see how what a long list it is. Now, you take almost every group, and I, I, we don't have time to go through all of them, but they break it down among uh, Democratic men where Donald Trump's popularity, this was in January 2017, a year ago, to today. Among Democratic men, his, his, he's fallen 12 points. Young people aged 30 to 44 fallen 10 points. Just going down the list. Among evangelicals, his popularity has fallen 8 points. Wait, uh, it's only fallen 8 points among evangelicals, which I think is pretty but, telling. Like, but, Democrats have, a, like, they, he's lost more Democrats than he's lost evangelicals. Like, but, if you were a Democrat and supported Donald Trump, what were you doing to begin with? Yeah, exactly, right. But but the, but the initial support of evangelicals, obviously, was over 50%. Yeah, yeah. But even among that group, his popularity has fallen. Man. Uh, among all Christians, he's down uh, 7 points. Among all women, down 8 points. Uh, <laughs> Among uh, rural adults, down six points. Among Protestants, down five points. 
among Republicans, down four points. There's not one category here where Donald Trump has actually increased in popularity over the, over the last year. And you just wonder how, how, how far he could fall and how much further that could go. All of those good questions to throw to our good friend John Allen from NBC News. Joining us next here in studio on The Bill Press Show. We'll take a quick break. Back with John Allen on this Monday, January 15th, Martin Luther King Day. Search for The Bill Press Show on iTunes. And remember to rate, review, and subscribe. This is The Bill Press Show. Incoming missile alert. No, the only missile headed your way right now is The Bill Press Show. Coming to you live from Washington, D.C., our nation's capital. With all the big news of the day, some good and some not so good, we'll get through it all with you and look forward to your comments on Twitter uh, at BP Show, of course. We're brought to you today by the International Association of Firefighters. So proud to have uh, the firefighters as sponsors of the Bill Press Show, those good men and women uh, that we, uh, we count on, and uh, they never let us down on the front line protecting American families every day. Under the leadership of President Harold Schaatberger, we salute them, thank them for their support of the uh, program. You see the fire truck going by today. Give them a big wave, a big salute, and say hello with me to uh, NBC News, John Allen, national political reporter uh, here in studio with us. Hello, John. Hi. How are you? Everything good? You uh, get the trophy for coming in on Martin Luther King Day. It's a federal holiday, but uh, some of us are... Still at work. President Trump, like uh, President Obama before him, uh, has encouraged people to do uh, acts of civil good on Martin Luther King's birthday. So uh, still... I thought that I would come here and, in the public interest to uh, do, do what I could for you, the Bill Press show. Very good. Well, we we, uh, we thank you for that sacrifice that you're making. Uh, we've been uh, already at it this morning for about a half an hour, uh, stirring up a little bit of uh, our own storm. Stormy Daniels. Our own Stormy. You just like of, saying that. Yeah, he Twitter comments. Who I doesn't? Really do. So, Peter, what's up? Yes, we're on Twitter at BP Show, at BP Show. Ron, uh, weighing in on the uh, war of words. Did Trump say it or did he oh. not? Ron says, why did it take three days for Trump to deny you the use mm. of the vulgarity? Because he said it, obviously. Uh, on the other war of words, did he say, I'd have a good relationship or I have a good relationship with uh, with Kim Jong-un? Sherry says, well, does it make sense either way? <laughs> That's, I think, probably the bigger issue, right? Like, I don't mm -hmm. think it makes sense either way. And Kurt says, don't forget Donald Trump and his infamous line, quote, I alone can fix this. Uh, he also said, quote, if I win, I will instruct my AG to investigate you and put you in jail. He calls him Benedict Donald. If you have any comments, find us on Twitter at BP Show, at BP Show. All right. So where do you come down on this war on words? Let's start with what he allegedly called Haiti and uh, uh, El Salvador. Uh, and some generalized African nations. Yes. Right. Do we believe Dick Durbin or do we believe Tom Cotton? <laughs> Or uh, Donald Trump. Uh, you know, it seems pretty clear that he said it. Yeah, I, 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 I Clearly, Durbin said that he said it. Uh, Lindsey Graham. It, pretty clear that Lindsey Graham told people that he said it. Um, Tom Cotton is as far into Donald Trump's corner as you possibly could get. President Trump, even as he was denying it, didn't really deny it in the tweet. The thing I said, I didn't say. Yeah. 
Like I, the and, language that was used, I didn't use that language. And I, also, reportedly, was on the phone with friends that night, laughing about it or right. almost bragging about it. Man, right. man my base will love this. You hear what I called those countries? Right. I, I presumably. Uh, he didn't call people until it, it was clear that this was out there. I yep. mean, yeah, I, right. I don't think this was something where it was like, I'm going to say this in front of some guys and they're going to report it. I don't think that was intentional that way. But the key here, what people are really upset about, and and obviously the countries that he was talking about are are upset about the country question, but I think what most uh, most people on the left certainly are upset about is the characterization of the people coming from those countries, right? That the U.S. doesn't want people coming from presumably their tainted countries, right? These I, I don't want to use the phrase yeah. because the phrase everybody uses, S, whole, when you say that really fast on television, sounds like exactly. Well, and But instead of people from those countries, what we need, he added, was we need more people from Norway. Now, what's the difference between the people from Norway and the people from Haiti and El Salvador and certain African-American countries? There are lots of differences in terms of, like, what fish they like to eat, but I think it's the <laughs> skin color that most people are upset about. But also, like, the thing with all of this that I think is is so, like, I don't understand why the Trump administration is acting, like, clutching their pearls and being like, oh, this, like, how dare they even think that he would say something like this? Like, we have him on tape. He said in front of an audience many, many years ago, he referred to China as the effing Chinese. Like, not that that's equal in terms of a slur, but, like, that's how Donald Trump talks. Are we really supposed to believe that he didn't refer to those countries as that? No, I don't. Well, this is the problem for the president at this point. You could People could report almost anything that portrayed him in a negative light, and for a certain portion of the population, probably more than half at this point, uh, it would be believable. This was the problem for him with the, the Michael Wolff book, which is... Mm-hmm. That so many of those stories are believable, whether or not they're true. Yeah, right. So then we're we're coasting along, getting come up, coming up on another government shutdown, and there's some talk. Some of it seems to be, you know, maybe connecting about a deal, some kind of a deal to protect the dreamers and to keep the government running. And then in the middle of it, Donald Trump drops this stink bomb. Um, does this derail the deal? It certainly doesn't help the deal, the chances of getting a deal, does it? I don't think it, it certainly doesn't help the chances of getting a deal. I think, or if it does, it's in this way. I, I wrote a piece for NBCNews.com, not to, to plug my, my own thing, but, 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 but basically the premise it. of it was, uh, and I, you know, I talked to, to some folks about this, immediately makes it harder for Democrats to cut a deal with him. So if he wants to get a deal, that means he's going to have to make more concessions because Democrats don't trust his intentions on this. I don't think they ever did, but they even more so will be suspicious of anything that Democratic leaders uh, or you know members of the Senate and some bipartisan working group that the Senate always puts together. Uh, if somebody cuts, if Democrats cut a deal with them, their constituents are going to be wary of that, uh, which means he's going to have to uh, lean farther toward them to get something done. And so that makes it less likely that a deal gets done because that enrages his base. I mean, you know, if he was to replace the wall with a moat or something, maybe the base would be okay. But, you know, there was a deal outlined. There was a basic deal that could have been had here. 
and maybe ultimately it will be, which is, you know, the, the Democrats will allow for some beefing up of border security. They give them a billion or two billion dollars to start building a wall and they and they get the dreamer uh, dreamers protected. Instead, he's saying, let me take this wish list for what the harshest measures from uh, a right wing uh, version of comprehensive immigration reform is and match those up with protecting dreamers, even though those pieces were supposed to match up with, uh, you know, path to citizenship for 11 million people. You know, it's sort of a, a bait and switch on that. And you put those pieces together and ultimately you're protecting 800,000 people uh, if you're the Democrats in exchange for, um, you know, the, uh, the immigration policy of Torquemada. Right. So um, switching gears, um, last week, Daryl Issa announces he's not going to run for reelection. Uh, Orange County, California. Ed Royce had uh, announced before Orange County, California. He's Daryl Issa, San Diego and Orange, but Ed Royce, Orange County, not going to run for re-election. Dana Rohrbacher in Orange County, California, in pretty bad shape, um, considered quite vulnerable. There's one other seat in Orange County. At any rate, Democrats could pick up as many as four seats in Orange, the conservative bastion of Orange County, California, which people are now saying, there are several stories, I think front page of New York Times and, Wa- and Washington Post this morning, that a Democratic takeover of the House is almost considered um, like a done deal already. Uh, obviously, nobody should ever say that in politics, but well, what do you think if, the chances are? I think they're improving, but I also think that, you know, talk to me in, in October when we've seen all these candidates raise money, we've seen them go out on the stump. The Democrats have had their primaries because, uh, you know, uh, you know, on the Democratic side, there's a ton of energy. Uh, and the positive of that is that there are candidates everywhere uh, and, and in races where they wouldn't normally have them. Um, but also they may not nominate their best candidates in some of these places. Maybe right. some of those candidates who are not the best candidates will win uh, and, and go on to win in November. But I think it's hard right now when we haven't seen the primaries, we haven't seen the money raising. Is the energy on the Democratic side? Yes, believe? hugely. Yeah. Big, bigly. Big, bigly. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I think that's what we saw in, in this series of special elections over the course of the last several months um, or, or over the course of the last year plus. Uh, you've got Democrats showing up. They are energized to show up. They are energized to knock on doors. They are no longer afraid of uh, uh, of angering their neighbors when they fly their Democratic flag. Yeah. There's a, I mean, there used to be sometimes a social cost for some of these folks in their neighborhoods to say, I'm a Democrat. But look what happened in Alabama with Doug Jones, where you had this significant shift in terms of social cost, where the social cost was being with Roy Moore and Don Trump, Donald Trump, not with being uh, with Doug Jones. And I, I think you're seeing that. Like, some of this is a, a backlash because of uh, the presidential election. And you're seeing, you know, I think uh, Amy Chozik, the New York Times, wrote an opinion piece uh, the other day that said that basically held uh, the view that. Uh, you would not have seen this women's movement, but for oh. Hillary Clinton's loss, and I think that's true. I think that the, the uh, Democratic energy, whether or not they were supporters of Hillary Clinton, I think a lot of that Democratic energy, particularly among women, is a direct result of what they saw uh, in 2016. Uh, I've used these numbers so many times, but with Emily's list supporting great organization, supporting strictly Democratic pro-choice women. Uh, when Hillary was a nominee, uh, so 
um, when she became a Democratic nominee, she, she got, there were 900 women who signed up to run for office through Emily's List. Training programs, the whole thing, yeah. which they thought that was incredible, more than ever before in any year. They called it the Hillary bump. This year, Emily's List is training 15,000 women who signed up to run for office. School board, city council, yeah. but... That's, I mean, that's the Trump bump, you know, from 1,000 right. to 15,000. But, but I also but, don't think it should be lost that there's a there's a, people who quietly vote, women who quietly voted for Hillary Clinton are now loudly running for office. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. Back to the House for a second. So the numbers are, um, just to put it in perspective, Democrats need 24 to take back the House. The average loss of the party in power in the first midterms is 32 uh, and they're projecting that Democrats will pick up as many as as forty seats. So the opportunities the there, opportun- yeah, that's the opportunities there. All every uh, environmental factor that you would look at, retirements on the Republican side, popularity of the president, the fact that it's a first, you know, the midterm and is his first term of the presidency, which we saw with uh, Barack Obama was a, an electoral disaster uh, for the president's yeah. party. All of those things are are in place. So the Democrats just have to execute. And by the way, um, the DNC has not been raising money well, but other Democratic entities are raising very well. So I, I think all these things are going to be funded. All these races are going to be funded. Most of them will be funded. Um, and, and then it's just a matter of, like, are they able to take advantage? And I don't think that so, it's just these Hillary Clinton districts. I mean, there's 23 districts, I believe, that Hillary Clinton won that were uh, – that, that are represented by Republicans right now, the universe is much larger than that. There are are districts that Donald Trump won by Mm -hmm. five points or eight points or maybe even ten points uh, that will suddenly be on the board coming November. All right. How about the Senate? Uh, I think it's a tough trick for the Democrats to take control of the Senate. Uh, That doesn't mean they can't do it. It, It's possible. They only need, like, three. They have to defend – well, they have to defend their own – and they, need, own and, and they need two. two. Two, right. So, you know, they pick up Nevada, Arizona, and defend their own, then they win. And look, they're they're getting good news right now in some places. Uh, you know, North Dakota, they can't the Republicans can't find a candidate, candidate they like to run against Heidi Heitkamp. Um, if you look in West Virginia, you know, we think Joe Manchin's still in good shape in West Virginia. People seem to like him. Um, but Indiana could be and, tougher for, for the Democrats yeah. to and hold that seat. Doug Jones is there from Alabama. And D- Doug Jones is there from, <laughs> from Alabama, which just proves um, that nothing's a total deadlock. I mean, and and you know, you, look, you're going to see in Utah, Mitt Romney is going to uh, probably be elected to the United States Senate as a foil within the Republican Party to Donald Trump, and from a state that had been whose Republican Party had been moving more and more toward the Tea Party conservative wing um, over the years. And suddenly has kind of snapped back because they look at what Donald Trump says in part about immigrants. You know, mm-hmm. the more the Mormon Church is missionary. Yes, yes. and they uh, and they are uh, they they uh, have policies on immigration uh, and refugees that match up well with you know sort of the liberal wing of uh, Catholicism or even some of these evangelical churches. They they are not hardliners on immigration. They believe that you should treat refugees as your own. Right. Jonathan Martin's a friend of uh, uh, both of ours. He he has a front page story in the New York Times this morning, which I found a little cra- uh, bizarre, curious, because the question is: Would Romney run for Senate as an ally or a foe of President Trump? 
I mean, it's, there's no doubt about that, is there? I think what Romney. he'll do is what every Democrat uh, in, in tough districts and tough states should uh, probably do next election, which is to say, when I agree with the president, I'll vote with him, and when I don't agree with him, I'll vote against him. And it's the problem kind of what for the Doug other, Jones said, right? But. And and that's exactly. But the problem for other Republicans is they've been voting with him for the last, yeah. you know, yeah. the last year. So the ones who are sitting in office, uh, they don't have that luxury. And then the Democrats, and this is always true: the out of power, power party has the ability to say something like that and sort of tie. Uh, the incumbents to the, the sitting president. But probably the most critical speech any of us have ever, anybody ever gave about Donald Trump was the one that Mitt Romney gave during the primary. Right. I mean, and, you know, uh, yeah. yeah. Do you have a clip of that? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> He's a phony, a fraud. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he used all those words. Right? I mean, yeah, I mean, he was like, don't elect this guy. Do we know that Romney's going to run? He hasn't announced he yet. He hasn't announced yet, but it, it is very clear that that's the intent. In fact, uh, some people were advising him to run even if Orrin Hatch had decided to seek an- another term. And maybe that had something to do with Orrin Hatch deciding not to seek another term. I think the biggest tell, by the way, is that Mitt Romney has changed his location to Utah on Twitter. You know, on Twitter you have your location of where you're located. It's it's Utah now. There was a great cartoon about that. And it's it's hard to describe a cartoon on well, television or radio, but I'll give it a try. All right. Mitt Romney's in the, uh, in the garage and he's like, you know, honey, have you... I forget what it was that he was looking for. He's like, you know, honey, have you seen my watch or whatever? And she says, uh, I think it's in the garage. And he says, the one in Utah or the one in Massachusetts? <laughs> well, he's got New Hampshire. Right. Here's a guy. I'm telling you, if he wins this, it's a big, one of the biggest hat tricks in American politics, right? Because he was born in Michigan. He lives in California he's and, not New from Ham- Utah. and New Hampshire. He's not from Utah in any way other than... But at, some level, but at some level, this is like saying... Like, and he was Jewish, governor of Massachusetts, of all places. At some level, this would be saying, like, uh, you know, uh, like a, a Jewish person, like uh, like a gold of my year or whatever, like moves to Israel, becomes prime minister or whatever. And you're like, well, she wasn't born in the Middle no, East. But, like, co- she's still of the people in a way that Mitt <laughs> Romney is of the people of Utah. They won't accuse him of being a carpetbagger. No. I mean, no. I'm sure he's been to right. Utah before. There is, uh, <laughs> oh, the Olympics, of course. The <coughs> There's a, another Senate candidate um, being talked about today um, who is already out with an ad running, it sounds like, not just against Senator Ben Cardin uh, in Maryland, but um, against the entire political establishment, Chelsea Manning. Uh, here she is. We need someone willing to fight. We need to stop asking them to give us our rights. Them. They won't support us. They won't compromise. We need to stop expecting that our systems will somehow fix themselves. We need to actually take the reins of power from them. We need to challenge them at every level. We need to fix this. We don't need them anymore. We can do better. Is that Alex Jones music playing in the background? <laughs> I was about to say, but, it's very that music, in the, yeah. yeah, very apocalyptic, right? And Chelsea Manning, God bless her. But uh, what's the message there? Yeah, well, them, them. <laughs> I think Chelsea Manning's idea here. Well, what's the message there? I'm not entirely sure, but it sounds like the globalist stuff that Donald Trump was talking about, <laughs> oh, running yeah. against Ben Cardin in Maryland. I don't know, um, but I, but I think more to the point. Um, Chelsea Manning would like to be a national figure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, this is running an, a campaign for to be a national figure and hoping to use Maryland as a 
as a as a stepping stone for that. Cardin's um, uh, relatively untested, uh, which should make him concerned. I'm not sure Maryland is the best state for, for uh, Chelsea Manning because uh, Maryland is a Democratic state, and it's a pretty liberal state, but it's not a super not, liberal state. Right. And uh, Yeah, and it's not like wacky. It's not Western, like, conspiracy theory. It's yeah. just you have so many government employees who <laughs> are the them. Point. Yeah. Yeah. Right? right. I mean, that she's talking about. This is why Donald Trump uh, was, you know, popular in parts of Virginia, but not very popular in Northern Virginia. He was like, I'm going to drain the swamp. And all the people were right. like, I am the swamp. <laughs> that, that, that means I'm out of a job. Right. Yeah. And, right. And, and look, obviously, he didn't mean he was going to drain the swamp because we haven't seen a whole lot of right. evidence of that. We saw tax lobbyists uh, went out pretty well in, in the tax cut. <laughs> defense lobbyists went out pretty well in this argument uh, right now over, over defense spending. Will there be a GOP challenger to Donald Trump in the primary in 2020? Everyone says so. And so I suspect that somebody will run against him. But anybody serious. I know. That's the question. Yeah. And who would be serious? You know, maybe maybe uh, John Kasich would, would do it and be serious. But if Trump holds 35% approval rating in the country, he's got a hammer lock on the Republican primary process. I mean, who shows up in primaries? The activists yeah, do. Right, right. Um, and they, they tend to be more impassioned. Well, some people are, are t- talking about, already talking about Mitt Romney. He gets in the Senate, then he turns right around and runs for president, which I think would be a little... Gauche. Yeah. It would be a little well, ambitious even for Mitt Romney. <laughs> even for Mitt Romney. Uh, but how about a Jeff Flake? I mean, he's giving another speech. He's already signaled on the floor this of, of the Senate this Wednesday about the fake news comments, which he made yesterday on Face the Nation. Um, at the same time, he's voted for Trump on for the tax bill and other stuff. But well, look, if you vote against the tax cut and you're a Republican, that's the greatest apostasy, right? Like, you can't possibly do something more against your mm-hmm. the things that you've run on for your entire career. I'm not surprised by any Republican that yeah. voted for the tax bill. Um, but Jeff Flake is literally the most personable lawmaker I've ever met. Really? He's, really? He is yeah. the nicest guy. And I'm not in like a fake nice way. He's like, he's just a nice guy. And what's amazing about him is when I started covering the Hill, he was considered the, uh, the crazy far right right winger. Mm-hmm. And now... He's the most moderate Republican on Capitol Hill, and I don't think he's changed any of his positions. <laughs> um, you know, I, I can't. But think it was Flake, remember, who got pretty close to President Obama on immigration issues. Particularly, you know, he's always been that way on immigration. Yeah. He's, yeah. He comes from his, he comes from a border state, and he comes from a border state, and from a like I was saying before, from religion that. But he even wrote a book in, critical of Donald Trump, so it's not impossible that he he might. could run for president. But where would he get? I mean, the problem is that if somebody were to challenge Donald Trump for the presidency within the Republican Party, they would have to be able to break apart some of that 35 percent coalition that that continues to approve of Donald Trump. And maybe you could get a little bit of it. You probably have to get like a good, I don't know, 25, 30 percent of that 35 percent. I don't mean that you'd have to get 30 percent of the – I'm saying you have to get like 15 or 20 percent. 
now I'm doing math badly. But my, my point being, you wouldn't have to get the whole of it. You'd have to get a small portion of it, but, but a significant small portion. You make a good point, and we're just about out of time. But, uh, you know, I get, I get tired of hearing about the Donald Trump base. Well, his base likes this, his base likes this. But at the same time, if you've got a solid 35%, particularly when you're looking at a Republican primary coming up, you're in pretty good shape, aren't you? It's like 70% of the Republican primary, you know, give or take. Yeah, yeah. I think Bernie Sanders would love to have that in the Democratic primary going into 2020. Mm-hmm. Right. I think you take that and run. Yeah. Uh, well, whether Bernie runs again is another question, which we don't have time to get into right now. <laughs> but I'll tell you one thing. It sure looks like it. It does, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah. He's moving around, helping a lot of candidates, raising a lot of money. The rest of the day, you can join the world with this federal holiday. John Allen, Martin Luther King Day. Thanks for coming in. Hey, everybody. This is Bill Press. Thanks for listening to the Bill Press and Friends podcast. And now do yourself a favor. If you haven't already done so, subscribe to the show on iTunes. Here's what you do. Just search for the Bill Press show. Then you can take us with you and listen in anywhere you go. And you'll get new shows from us as soon as they're posted. And one more thing. If you really enjoy Bill Press and Friends, please help us grow by telling a friend, writing a review, and giving us a rating on iTunes. It's so great to have you on board. Many thanks. On your radio, on your TV, and online, this is The Bill Press Show. Yep, no missile alert here. The only thing heading your way is The Bill Press Show on this Martin Luther King Day, Monday, January 15. Hello, hello, everybody. Great to see you. Thanks so much for joining us uh, as we uh, head out your way from our studio on Capitol Hill here in Washington, D.C. With all the news of the day, yeah, a lot of news even on a federal holiday, Martin Luther King Day, uh, a crazy story about this uh, false missile alert in the state of Hawaii. Fortunately, it was a false alarm. Unfortunately, it took them uh, 38 minutes uh, from the time that the alarm was sent out until they were able to tell people uh, it was uh, not for real and they could just relax uh, Congress not in session today, but they come back this week to deal with still a looming government shutdown by the end of the week uh, and the increasingly difficult chance of reaching an agreement on the DREAMers program, particularly in the light of some incendiary remarks made by the President of the United States. As always, uh, any legislative progress is derailed by Donald Trump's comments uh, on Twitter or in front or in front of reporters or in front of other members of, or members of Congress at the White House. To help us sort through all the news of the day, Deputy News Editor for Axios, Alexi McCammon in studio with us. Hi, Alexi. Nice to see you. Good to see you, too. Happy thanks Monday. For, thanks for coming in. Uh, particularly, we say anybody who comes in today on a federal holiday, Martin Luther King Day gets a special bonus. <laughs> yes, like the Spirit exactly. Award. And a special thank you. you yes, have, a gold you, star. You get the Spirit Award, the gold star. <laughs> <laughs> so we'll jump right into it with Alexi McCammon and with all of you. Don't forget, we want to hear from you. Love getting your comments on Twitter, at BP Show. But first... This is the Full Court Press. Just a couple of other stories making news. Well, there is debate over did he say it or did he not say it over the words that are now sort of infamous for whether Donald Trump said those countries. You know the word I'm talking about. Well, one thing we know did say it was Donald Trump's D.C. hotel here on Saturday. When I said said it, someone made a projection and put on 
the Trump Hotel with a giant phrase that just said the word that he said about the countries where people were coming That's a pretty from. good description of the Trump Hotel. I think that's probably accurate. The word was projected in large letters on the D.C. Hotel along with the poop emoji that was broadcast. No. Oh, God. Also, the phrases pay Trump <laughs> bribes here, emoluments welcome, and we are all responsible to stand up and end white supremacy. All of those phrases were projected onto Trump's D.C. hotel. From where? Yeah. Across the street, I guess. I guess from across the street. There's a guy here who's an artist, and he does a lot of stuff with light, and he he's done this a couple of times. Yeah, yeah. Uh, with different phrases. I think it's not the first time they projected something on the front of the Trump hotel. It's not the first time they projected something yeah. on the front of the Trump hotel. So uh, he did it again over the weekend. By the way, it's flu season. And we are experiencing widespread flu for the first time uh, all around the entire continental United States. Some areas usually don't get hit very hard by the flu season. But for the first time, they say in 13 years, the CDC put something out. So this is the worst flu season that we've seen in mm-hmm. like a very, very long time. Uh, people are getting hospitalized with the f- flu. 100,000 people have been hospitalized uh, just last week alone. That's nearly double than uh, previous years. So they're just saying like, careful out there the flu is going around it's a problem is it too late to get your flu shot i guess not right i guess it's not too late to get a flu shot but you should get it before now you know i've never had a flu shot uh but i guess that's something you should do right i do it every year september october around that time go for it uh by the way they're free you go to you can get to safeway and get one you can go to cvs and get one yeah, over the weekend, we'll take a quick look at the box office. Number one movie in the country is Jumanji, Welcome to the Jungle. Uh, also notable, Star Wars, The Last Jedi, officially became the top grossing film of 2017. It has made $1.264 billion. Uh, also opening over the weekend was The Post. Didn't really register very bigly, but uh, it's We went there. to see it. Horrible movie. I saw it. I didn't like it. We didn't see it. It was sold out. Oh, no, really? Damn it. <laughs> Live video, Phil's commentary, the best clips from the show, all in one place. YouTube.com slash The Bill Press Show. Yep, Richard Nixon said, I'm not a crook. Donald Trump says, I'm not a racist. They're both wrong. What do you say, everybody? Great to see you on a Monday, Martin Luther King Day, Monday, January 15, saluting <laughs> the life and the legacy and the spirit of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., his uh, words and his actions continue to inspire us and to resonate uh, across uh, the country. Among most Americans, not sure it's reached the President of the United States yet, no matter uh, what proclamation uh, he signed in the Oval Office last week. Uh, but we do celebrate this Martin Luther King Day, um, and uh, thank you so much for joining us. As we come to you live coast to coast from our studio on Capitol Hill, with uh, the news of the day, joining you online on YouTube, youtube.com slash The Bill Press Show. Of course, joining you on Free Speech TV, coast to coast, and all of our good friends out in the greater Chicago area on WCPT and in studio with us, Alexi McCammond, our good friend who is deputy news editor of Axios. Axios, which this week celebrates its first birthday. Yes. Uh, I'm so excited about it. I uh, haven't been there the full year, but it feels like a lifetime uh, in the best way. So 
I'm excited to celebrate that. Uh, I must say, so Axios.com, uh, you should check it out if you haven't already. Yes. Um, and sign up for at least a couple of the great newsletters. Um, yes. Uh, Mike Allen with his... Uh, Axios AM. Axios AM and, and Axios PM. Axios PM. These are all free. Yes. But they're best sources of information on what's happening and insights into some of the issues of the day. Uh, also, Jonathan Swan on mm-hmm. Sunday evening does his... Sneak peek. Sneak peek. Yep. And doesn't... Um, my, Amy Miller. Yeah, Amy Harder and Amy Ben Harder. Heeman have a great one on, on energy. energy. Yep. Yes, right. So yeah. there are lots of the newsletters yeah. inside of Axios that you can subscribe to. Uh, but yes. in a year, uh, I must say, um, we've made great, great strides, great progress, and made a Thank big you. impact on yeah. the uh, on the whole news gathering operation here in Washington. I hope DC. so. Yeah, yeah. I'm really uh, heartened to see what we've done in a short amount of time and. And I couldn't not only that, you're going to have a big party Thursday night. Yes, we All are. Right. Yeah, right. to celebrate our birthday, so uh, to speak. Uh, um, yeah, uh, I'll see you there. Yes, I'm uh, excited to have you. <laughs> thanks, <laughs> thanks for the invitation. Of course. Hey, we were talking uh, with John Allen in the last uh, half hour about um, the overall chances of Democrats taking back the House, mm-hmm. um, which would be the payoff for Nancy Pelosi staying around because she uh, could very well be Speaker again. Um, I want to ask you about one particular house race that you've you've uh, uh, reported on. But overall, do you share this uh, feeling that it's almost in the cards for Democrats? Certainly. I mean, I think it's uh, too early to make any solid predictions. But we've heard from various aides on the Hill who are projecting from both sides of the aisle who are projecting something like 40-plus seats going to Democrats. And Democrats need 24. They need 24. Uh, I think 29 House Republicans have announced that they're retiring, so that's obviously five more than Democrats need. Um, and if I remember correctly, the the biggest number of seats to flip in a president's uh, first term, first year, would be uh, 32. So it wouldn't be insane for them to pull it off. Um, and I think between, like, you know, GOP House leadership – Folks uh, talking about resigning, 29 House Republicans re- retiring or not seeking re-election already, um, Democrats raising a ton of money in ways that they haven't in the past, and having just a slew of really strong, diverse candidates running across the country really helps that you know, situation for them. Uh, and several people have reported uh, that there's even a, a certain gallows humor among Republican members and Republican staffers that they just see this happening and they've almost uh, already accepted defeat. Uh, Congressman John Yarmouth from Kentucky, who's a good friend of ours and a frequent guest on the program, who happens also to be the chair of the Bourbon Caucus uh, of the House, um, was was quoted the other day as saying that he's the ranking Democrat on the Budget Committee. Right. And people are already calling him Mr. Chairman. Oh, I'm sure. Right, know. right. I mean, because certainly just, Democrats are excited about the yeah, prospects. No. Uh, the, the worst thing to do would be to take that for granted and then not, not work their butts off. But I don't think Democrats right. will make that mistake. Right, but, right. So, um, and one race that has gotten particular interest in the uh, uh, nationwide uh, is a particular, it looks like a maybe surprisingly strong challenge to Speaker Paul Ryan. Right. Yeah, Randy Bryson, Wisconsin. He is the leading Democratic candidate. Um, Politico just reported last week, or earlier this weekend, rather, that he raised $1.2 million in the last quarter, the fourth quarter of 2017. Um, I think 
numbers when, you know, talking about campaign fundraising can be boring or sort of an abstract theory. But I think what's important to point out about that is that uh, two things. One, Democrats, you know, that's like a significant amount of money for him to raise, especially Mm -hmm. in one quarter. Um, Two, when you look at his FEC filings through September of last year, uh, it showed that New York, California and Wisconsin were the top three uh, states to donate to his campaign, which suggests to me or reflects rather this growing anti-Trump movement that we've seen happen around the country. Right. People from big liberal states like New York and California, not just Wisconsin, are donating to his campaign, which sends a message that people all around the country, not just in races that are contentious with Republicans like Paul Ryan, are using their money to fight back against Trump and the administration and trying to assist, they think, in any way they can to help Democrats take the House. So I think that's an important thing for people to note about that. Randy Bryce, uh, who has been uh, here in studio with us, uh, and he is a member of the Iron Workers Union, um, and um, his uh, nickname is Iron Stash. Iron Stash, <laughs> right? Right. His Twitter Iron handle is with the Iron big Stash. Muscle. Iron Stash. Yeah. yeah. He's a colorful candidate, and he's uh, you know he's he's very smart, very sharp, got uh, great right. political skills, I think, and has really he's been traveling around the country, as you point out, and raising money from all over the country. Um, I don't know what that district. I mean, knocking off a speaker of the House of Representatives is uh, tough, right. uh, but it's happened. Tom right. Foley was defeated. Tom Daschle was defeated when he was Senate Majority Leader. Right. Um, uh, so w- w- what 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 does Paul Ryan's district look like in Janesville, Ohio? Right. So Wisconsin is so interesting. I was just speaking with someone who uh, works on a local campaign there to try to get a lay of the land of, you know, Wisconsin politics, and uh, he described it as the most purple state in the U.S., which is interesting and maybe a little optimistic. Um, but, you know, you do have these swaths of districts in Wisconsin that are more Republican than in the past. Um, and the interesting thing about Wisconsin is, as you mentioned, like Paul Ryan is Speaker of the House. He's a pretty strong Republican um then there's Governor Scott Walker, who is a Republican in Wisconsin, and they have built this Republican machine, so to speak, in Wisconsin uh, of this loyal base of folks who love them and love this so-called Republican machine they've created. Um, that said, there is a you know healthy amount of Latinos who live in Wisconsin, and I think especially with DACA, we'll see how that plays out for Republicans in the 2018 midterm election. Um, and I think that just... If this were under any other president, it might be different. But I think folks have seen in the last year alone how Trump has had an effect on the Republican Party. And that is a stain that they can't remove from their image when they're campaigning this year. So I think that's something that he'll have to face, especially going against Iron Stash. Uh, So the question about whether or not um, you you just mentioned DACA, and I know you reported on that and I want to ask you about it, whether or not there will be a DACA deal. Donald Trump uh, over the weekend um, um, saying that he doesn't think, first of all, that there will be a government shutdown or should be a government shutdown. This is down at Mar-a-Lago. I don't know if there'll be a shutdown. There shouldn't be because if there is, our military gets hurt very badly. We cannot let our military be hurt. And Trump's saying in terms of DACA, he's, this is kind of curious, kind of flipping, I think, uh, the reality here, but... He's saying that he's ready to make a deal. It's Democrats who are not. Oh, we're ready, willing, and able to make a deal. 
make a deal on DACA, but I don't think the Democrats want to make a deal. So what's really happening on DACA? I mean, Democrats have been pushing for a deal on Dreamers. First of all, he's the guy that took the program, ripped it out, and threw it to the Congress. Otherwise, it would still be going on right the way it was under President Obama. So he created this mess in the first place. And ever since then, Democrats were saying, when was this last? Thursday? No, I mean, uh, when he first threw it to Congress was four or five months ago, right? sure, yeah. Right away, Democrats said, fine, here it is. Okay, let's do it today. Right. Right. And And they tried to get it done before the end of the year. Right. And and Republicans said, no, we can't do it now, but we'll do it as soon as into the new year. So Democrats have been pushing for to extend a clean bill. Right. To extend the DACA program with a clean bill from day one. Right. And and I think what uh, is surprising about this is that we had that bipartisan group of six senators, you know, led by Lindsey Graham and Dick Durbin. Um, that included three Republicans in addition to three Democrats. And they sort of represented all factions of the Senate, right, from leadership to, you know, various committees on on every policy you can imagine. And so they came up with it. They came up with a deal. They decided on a deal. On, uh, bipartisan deal that they maintain checks the boxes that Trump said he needed addressed, right? The four uh, boxes, right, whatever. Right, all those yeah. things. In particular, chain migration, he's been big about talking about, and the uh, uh, diversity visa lottery system. Um, border, security border security and dreamers. And dreamers, exactly. So they came together to make a deal to address all those things, I'm told that the way it went down is uh, Trump called Lindsey Graham and Dick Durbin separately. They said, hey, we have a bipartisan deal. He said, good, great. Come talk to me in person today at noon. They are feeling heartened by that conversation, encouraged that he's going to sign off on it. They show up to the meeting expecting to meet just the three of them, Graham, Durbin, Trump. Then, to their surprise, in walks Tom Cotton. Tom Cotton, Purdue, uh, McCarthy, maybe um, these hardline conservatives who are not going to sign off on a bipartisan deal, even though it has three of their Republican colleagues who have weighed in on it. Uh, they didn't know they were going to show up. It's still up in the air who convinced them to show up to this meeting. But I've been told oh. that both Trump. The White, they wouldn't be there if the White House hadn't invited them. Well, right. Exactly. So it's either Stephen Miller, which I have been told by various Democrats is uh, who they think it was because he was worried this deal would be too liberal. Um, so he needed the conservatives to show up. Other people have said it was Trump's thinking. Um, but in any case, they show up with this deal that checks his boxes. Then the hardline conservatives show up and are like reminding Trump of their. You can't do this. You Mr. can't President. do this, Mr. President. Exactly. And he says, no deal. We have no deal. I'm not signing off on this. And that just seems like, he, you know, it, he's just like really giving into the Stephen Millers and the Cottons and Purdue's who have these really strict views and no, and have what looks like no interest in actually striking a bipartisan deal. They want what they want, and they don't really want what Democrats or these three Republicans on this committee wanted. Um, it looks like there's going, there is a deal. Democrats will argue there's a deal, right, because they have this that they presented to Trump. It looks like he won't sign off on it um, out of a little bit of stubbornness. Um, I think a fear that his base, his really conservative base, who wants nothing to do with, you know, immigration or different paths to citizenship will rebuke him. And I also think he it's he 
is almost certain that the government will shut down and this is an easy way for him to blame Democrats instead of himself and his administration. All right, so it's the 15th today. Uh, the 19th is... Saturday? Friday? Friday. Yes, no? Friday. 15th, yeah, yes. Friday. Friday. Uh, the government going to shut down? If somehow Republicans convince Democrats that they are not going to include DACA in the spending bill and instead it, uh, address it separately, the government will likely not shut down. However, we, ha- we have no indication that that's going to happen. I think Democrats would be really unhappy and unwilling to do that because Republicans would be winning in the short term and maybe even in the long term if they you know, screw them on a separate DACA Looking plan. at it from the Republican point of view, too, I mean, it's always a question about who gets blamed for this. Um, right. But it would, seems to me, it would be, if the government were to shut down, it would be hard to blame Democrats for a government shutdown when Republicans control the House and the Senate right. and the White House. Right. That's the narrative. But you see both sides blaming the other, um, certainly, right? Democrats are blaming Republicans and Trump, especially. Trump and Republicans are blaming Democrats. What we're hearing from some of the more conservative Republicans is that they think that the deal that was presented to them by Durbin and Graham at all was laughable. They think it was like way too liberal. They think it didn't actually address what Trump wanted. Um, and they think it was influenced too heavily by the Democrats on that committee. So they can use that rhetoric to blame Democrats. Um, and and I think that could be successful depending on how knowledgeable folks are back home on immigration, right? And but the different th- systems. This seems to be now the moment of truth on the Dreamers because it runs out early March, right? right. And again, it's been there. It's been in the Senate languishing for at least four months. Democrats have, have, have been pushing for just to just take that one issue of the dreamers and separate it out from all the other um, immigration complicated right. issues right. of immig- or surrounding immigration and just get that thing done and give these people, young people, their, the protection that they really, I believe, deserve. Diane Feinstein made that argument again in this big meeting in the in the cabinet room uh, last week, uh, and Trump agreed and with it. And Trump her. agreed with it until Kevin McCarthy jumped in and <laughs> and uh, changed his mind. Right. Um, so the Democrats have been pushing for that again before the end of the year. They they wanted it as part of the short term continuing resolution, and Republicans said, "No, we can't do it now, but we'll do it in early." So now, this is sort of the last chance, right? Um, who know? I don't know how many people will follow this, but I, I was surprised. Congressman John Lewis, yesterday, uh, on Face the Nation, with I mean, uh, this week with George Stephanopoulos, said in terms of voting for if 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 the Dreamers are not part of a keep the government running deal, here's John Lewis. I for one will not vote for government funding until we get a deal. On DACA, so right, no deal on DACA, right. no government funding, right. So that's the big question, and that's what I've been trying to figure out by talking to various Democratic aides on the Hill. Is like, is your boss willing to shut the government down over DACA? Yes or no? Everything suggests yes. We know how politics plays out, though, so they might not otherwise. But I mean, they're just stuck in this really tough position. And you see this argument being made uh, among some liberals that, like, they really need a deal and want a deal on immigration and on DACA. Now they're stuck bargaining with Trump, 
who referred to those various countries as S-hole countries and made it seem like immigrants from those countries are uh, less than or unworthy of coming to America and having the opportunities here. So they're stuck making a deal on, you know, better paths to citizenship and legal immigration systems with someone who is now being accused of being racist because of these comments that he's made about immigrants. So it's like, where do they even go from here with someone like that who has views on immigration like that? And I think it's an opportunity for them, those comments from Trump, make it easier for Democrats to hold stronger in these views and say, like, we are not budging. This is what we want. This is what we believe is the right thing. You clearly have, you know, no interest in making a bipartisan deal. And the way you speak about these countries is not appropriate to us. We're not moving forward on funding the government unless you strike a deal. So uh, uh, at some point, you almost feel sorry for uh, the Republicans in Congress who are serious about trying to get something done on any issue. But like now it happens to be immigration. We've seen it happen before with, with things are rolling along and there are some talks going on and they're moving toward resolving some issues and then suddenly Donald Trump says something outrageous uh, or or worse, right, right, vulgar. And suddenly that's all we're talking about, right? right. It just throws the whole thing uh, upside down. That's what's happened this week where talks right. were going on about what we can do with DACA and keeping the government fund. And then suddenly Donald Trump makes the, the famous comments about right. uh, Haiti and El Salvador. And yet Republicans still fall all over this guy. I mean, here, the, like, whether or not he used that famous phrase, mm-hmm. right? Here are Tom Cotton and David Perdue on the Sunday shows yesterday. I didn't hear that word either. I certainly didn't hear what Senator Durbin has said repeatedly. I'm telling you he did not use that word, George, and I'm telling you it's a gross misrepresentation. So uh, you know, you know that these Republicans have to be embarrassed. They're always... Cleaning up after this guy. Right. Why right. do they? Why do they always fall on their sword like that? Particularly to go out. If anybody else, I could see even a Ronald Reagan or a George W. Bush, they'd be believable if they went out and said he didn't say that outrageous thing. Right. But Donald Trump, he says outrageous things all the time. All the time. He's got a history of it. Let's go back to the Access Hollywood tape. Right. Oh yeah. Yeah, well, and we saw how, Talk about obscenities we can't repeat on the air here, right? Right, Right, exactly. Well, I'm glad you brought that up because I think that reflects what we have going on now that he's president, right? Like, we saw how Republicans, after that came out, sort of rebuked him and distanced themselves, and then they ended up Including Paul Ryan, who disinvited him from a campaign event at the time. Now now Paul Ryan kisses his ass in public every day. It's just, yeah, I mean, I... Why? Um, I think they just have to, I don't, I mean, honestly, this is one example of something that I'm like, this is just too much he said, she said, right? Like, first they change it from, they come out, Cotton and Purdue, and say, oh, I don't recall. So that's not denying it. In the same way that the deputy press secretary sent out that statement, that was not it, which that should be the bigger focus and the bigger issue. I didn't hear it, or I don't recall, is stretching the truth a little bit, but at least it's... It's not flat out somewhat you know. credible. Right, yeah. right. And now those statements that you just played from yesterday were a little stronger in the language of he did not say that. Right. So not only are they saying that the reporting is a lie, they're saying Durbin is lying. They're yeah. claiming that they don't know. But that's the way we've seen the administration it, and Republicans in general 
handle Trump, right? Whether it's Jeff uh, Sessions or Paul Ryan or these Republicans, they just they claim they don't know or they don't they didn't hear it. I was just thinking, have has Donald Trump given Dick Durbin a nickname yet? I mean, I, I, ooh, not yet. Huh? That not I know yet, of. right? You know, yeah. it was sneaky Diane Feinstein last right, week. Right. Yes. Sloppy Steve. Steve Bannon. Sloppy Steve. Steve Bannon. Right. Yeah. The Turban Durbin. All right. Let's just see if he picks that oh, up and wow. uses it. Yeah, you know he's good, but but Cotton or Purdue, one of them said, "Well, you can't trust Dick Durbin." I mean, please, if right. there's one senator who's like a a Boy Scout, he's right. been a great senator, but I mean, who is as as honest and truthful as the day is long, right. it's Dick Durbin. He's not some flamethrower or anything. He's very careful in what he says. Now, if Dick Durbin says it, I, I believe him without a doubt. And then you add to that that Lindsey Graham came out uh, reportedly told the president right. to his face, Mr. President, you know that's not right. the kind of language you ought to be using. Immigrants are a great value to this society and done a lot for this country. The whole right. thing. Yeah. Well, Tim Scott said that Lindsey Graham told yes. him yes. that he heard those comments, and that the, the way it was being reported was basically accurate. Um, so it just, you know, it, I. The whole thing is a mess. Cotton and Purdue, it's important to remember, I think, showed up to that meeting with the goal of stopping the White House from signing off on this bipartisan deal. And the way that they're defending Trump and denying that he said this thing falls in line with that entire role that they're playing in all of this. But by the way, when when it gets this muddied... Trump wins. Right, exactly. Yes, that's all he needs is just a couple of seeds of doubt for it to just become a. He said, she said, he said, he said, whatever. I guess it's he said, he said, there are no women in the room. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but, but, like, this is all he needs. Right. This is all he needs. Right. And I think, you know, um, whether or not he said that comment, fine. It's It seems like he did. It seems odd and unlikely that he didn't say it. But whether or not he said it, fine. We can put that aside. Let's just have lawmakers focus on the fact that he presented the idea of having more immigrants from places like Norway Instead of Haiti and El Salvador, what is the basic, most obvious difference between those two immigrants? The color of their skin, right? So that is something that he definitely said, and no one is denying, and is still very problematic and something we should be talking about. So I would love to hear, you know, their thoughts on that instead of, well, you know, he didn't say that, so everything that's being reported is a lie. Is Donald Trump a racist? <laughs> uh, I knew this question was going to be asked. I firmly believe that. Calling him a racist will end the conversation with so many people. And I am someone who would talk and talk and talk and explain the ways in which I think things he has said are, uh, you know, steeped in racist views. Right. Or in views that are unwilling to try to understand other people and what they live like. And I talked about this last week that. We see the way that he does this all the time, starting from the campaign when he was yelling about African-American voters and painting them as so down and out and like their lives are so bad that what do they what do you have to lose to vote by voting for me? Right. He doesn't represent their interests or the things that matter to them. He doesn't have a healthy or even admirable amount of people of color in his cabinet uh, surrounding him for advice. He doesn't use them for advice that we know of to fix the issues that these communities face. And I think that just a general lack of attention or interest in helping them shows that uh, he maybe doesn't care as much about these communities as the president of the United States should. He certainly fans the flames of racial hatred. Right.
right. And, and yeah, and, and we saw that after Charlottesville, right? Um, some of these things are situations, I mean, race relations and issues can be tricky, but I think what's disheartening to me is in those moments, like especially after Charlottesville, during the campaign when he's talking about African-Americans, th- there seems to be a lack of a willingness to try to understand what people who look like me are thinking or facing when these things happen. And he speaks from a place uh, that is clearly without an intimate knowledge of these issues. And and it seems like he's not even trying to understand them. And he's had a history of doing that even before he uh, ran for public office. Uh, Alexia McCammond from Axios. Happy birthday. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. Happy Happy Axios birthday. Happy first birthday. Yeah. How about that? Have a great party. Come back and see us again soon. Yes. And you can follow uh, Alexia and all the good, our good friends at Axios at Axios.com. Eliza Collins covers the Congress for USA Today. Uh, Joining us next here on this Monday edition of the Bill Press Show, Martin Luther King Day. This is the Bill Press Show. How about it? Monday, January 15, Martin Luther King Day. It's a federal holiday, uh, but uh, we got news to talk about. So we are here with all of you celebrating the life and the legacy and the spirit of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., one of our greatest Americans of all time. Uh, and we're brought to you, to, coming to you live, as always, from our studio on Capitol Hill in Washington, D.C., brought to you today by the United Food and Commercial Workers Union, the good men and women of the UFCW under President Mark Perrone, building a better life for hardworking men and women. Uh, they're the union family that feeds, serves, and provides for America's hardworking families at our supermarkets and big grocery stores all across the country. We salute them, thank them for their good work and their support of the program, and direct you find out more from their website at ufcw.org. Uh, Alexa McCammon from Axios, uh, here as a friend of Bill for the entire hour. Uh, and we're joined, Alexi, by uh, Eliza Collins from USA Today, covering the Congress for USA Today. Eliza, you also get the Spirit Award for coming in on a federal holiday. <laughs> this wasn't too early. We thank you. That's right. Happy to be here. You know, it is cold, though. The media. It is. It's freezing. I even, it's what too cold. It? In the 20s now? I, no, I think it's 18 degrees because there's oh. that. There's the thing outside a couple oh. blocks down that said 18 yeah. degrees. Oh, no. oh, it's practically. It's a balmy 18 yeah. degrees. Oh, yeah. Well, I'm from Arizona, you guys. Oh. So this is oh, no. really cold. When I was back home in Chicago, the wind chill was negative oh. 17. Uh, my dog refused to walk outside, so he went about two weeks without a problem. Negative walk. seventeen. Negative seventeen. It's be oh a my God. So I keep telling myself, I'm like, okay, I'm from Chicago, I can handle this, and I still am like, <laughs> tears. <laughs> it's so cold. Yeah. Uh, but the dog, the dog is not he from re- Chicago. He, well, um, he is. He's just like a tiny miniature schnauzer who's like a baby. Which is probably my fault. <laughs> Negative 17 is uh, It's pretty cold. Uh, Eliza, we've been talking a lot about immigration. And one interesting thing, you know, all these meetings, there's Dick Durbin, there's Lindsey Graham. Uh, sadly, there's Tom Cotton, you know, and there's other guys. One person is missing, you've been pointing out to all these talks. What the hell happened to Marco Rubio? Right. Remember, Marco Rubio was this big voice on immigration, and that was sort of he was a moderate voice on immigration. He had immigrant parents. He was really hoping for a solution that could bring Democrats and Republicans to the table. And he was part of the Gang of Eight, as we remember. And we're having flashbacks to the Gang of Eight because it's basically the Gang of Six is that Dick Durbin, Lindsey Graham group you guys were talking about earlier that presented to Trump. Uh, 
And five out of the eight people are the same. The only people missing, I believe, are John McCain, who's been out, mm-hmm. Chuck Schumer, who's now a minority leader, so I'm not quite sure what the rules are on being a member of like something like that. And then Marco Rubio. And they've added Cory Gardner, who is also a Republican, but pretty moderate on immigration. But Marco Rubio's not there. Right. I remember during the New Hampshire primary, he talked a lot about his heritage and his parents' yeah, story. Yeah, his issue. It was his thing. But it was his thing, but he did not talk about his work on Gang of Eight because the primary, it killed him with conservative voters. Mm-hmm. So he talked about being someone of immigrants, but if you look back, I th- or, you know, a child of immigrants, but if you look back, he didn't necessarily publicize his Gang of Eight. And some could argue, when I talk to conservatives, they say that they think is what hurt him drastically and hurt his chances at the White House. So he's just decided to stay away from the issue? I mean, he says that he is giving more voices the chance to come in. He's not on the Judiciary Committee, which technically handles immigration legislation, although we've seen a lot of these other groups pop up that have nothing to do with the Judiciary Committee. But yeah, he's been sort of silent on the issue and kind of sidestepped when we've reached out to ask. And where does where is he on the conservative spectrum? I mean, he's a the Republican, but is he is he like a hardliner Don uh, Tom Cotton, or is he, we ought to recognize this as an important issue and take the lead in it, what's called a Lindsey Graham approach. Do we know? He's definitely a Lindsey Graham approach. That's what um, I thought, And he represents but... Florida, which is obviously yeah. a very large immigrant community. And he has said, you know, I'm not that involved in these conversations now, but I am looking for a solution to DACA. He also, I would imagine, is very for something like the wall or border enforcement, maybe because of learning his lesson in 2016. But as far as like protections for dreamers, he's very much for that. Well, Alexi, when that Donald Trump allegedly, maybe we should say, I don't think there's any doubt, made the comments about Haiti and El Salvador and certain African African countries, um, it didn't play very well in Florida. Not. Right. Not with the Republican governor of Florida, even. Right. Well, and and I think, like, that's the important thing to note, right? Like, we have folks like Cotton and Purdue who are coming <laughs> out and saying they don't recall because of whatever motivation they have. But I think we've seen across the board from the slew of Republican lawmakers who came out immediately saying this is a disgraceful comment. Diversity is one of the strongest points of our country. Um, we shouldn't talk about other countries this way. You see that sort of across the board people are, you know, not happy about these comments. Um and I think that could also be why some folks are doubling down. On yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't know, the over 200,000 Haitians, I think, in Florida. I mean, Rick Scott right, up for right, re-election. Right, right. The last yeah, thing he yeah. wanted was to alienate right. a big block of yeah. potential Republican voters. Right. Well, we even saw someone like Orrin Hatch, who's a pretty mm-hmm. pro-Trump, um, high up, you know, Senate president, come out immediately saying, look, I need more information, but if this is true, it's unacceptable and right. there isn't a large Haitian population as far as I know in Utah right. but I think people <laughs> people just sort of chose to come out on the other side of Trump on this so right. what is your take uh, you're close to it uh, uh, Alexi and I were talking about this what what is your take on the chances of reaching a deal which by the end of the week to keep the government running which also uh, does something about the dreamer program I think Trump's comment last week really hurt the chances. I think that there was a bipartisan group, really the only bipartisan group 
that came to a solution. There's a group of number twos in the Senate and House, which would be like the whips. You know, mm-hmm. John Cornyn, Dick Durbin is part of that group. Um, but they're sort of all over the map on immigration where they stand. Not, most of them have not made that a huge issue for themselves. So you could argue they're not. There's other bipartisan groups, but this gang of six, they really did address the four issues Trump had asked for, maybe not enough for what Trump said, and probably not enough for a lot of Republicans, especially in the House. But I think Dick Durbin is sort of right in saying this is the best chance you've got if you're calling for a bipartisan solution. And he pointed out, rightly so, that Trump had that meeting on TV for about an hour earlier in the week and addressed those four things and said, I'll sign anything you give me. And so it doesn't quite make sense that two days later they gave him something addressing the four issues that was a bipartisan compromise. You can argue that the group, the bipartisan group, is all pretty moderate on immigration. But they listened to what he said and gave them something. And he's pushing back and he's been attacking Democrats all weekend. Right. Right. Uh, And and these other comments, the vulgarity about Haiti and El Salvador on top of that. But... um, yeah, don't don't you think, Alexi, that if it had been just a meeting with Lindsey Graham and Dick Durbin and Donald Trump, there would have been a deal? Yes, but that's and we've seen that in the past when he met with you know Chuck and Nancy. Um, when <laughs> right. he's in a room alone, he does what he perceives to be the best deal in that moment, and I think that's why folks like Cotton and Purdue were so successful in sort of reining him in and saying, like, oh, wait, 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 don't forget these, like, hardline conservative views we have and the things that we want are not represented in this deal, so you can't sign off on it. I do think things would have been different had they not shown up. Um, And another thing that we've been hearing is that a handful of Republicans view this January 19th deadline for DACA as, like, not the real deadline. They sort of consider it to be in March. So I think they are more comfortable oh. taking their time and standing strong in their conservative views um, and not moving quickly on this, despite what the president said about, I will sign anything you bring right. me, because they view March as the real deadline. So, so not yet even. again, we could have, do you believe that, Eliza, a government, a temporary uh, um, CR mm-hmm. continuing resolution so to keep the government I, open for another few weeks without dealing with the dreamers. I think it's a very likely um, situation because Sad. you know we've heard that there nego- there are other things that they are negotiating actually on the budget, the spending caps, how high they can spend. Republicans want it just to be raised on defense. Democrats want it both equally looks like it's not going to just be defense but to how much what levels are still being negotiated that being said i think the comments from trump are really angering democrats and democrats that might have said look we'll vote for another two week you know to give us that time now might say nope we're not voting for it government shutdown republicans have to play ball on this right uh democrats angered by his comments republicans have to be embarrassed I mean, I I don't know. I think they. This is not the first time Trump has said something that they've had to be put on uh, hardly. The spot. No, right. so it's, uh, once a week at least. Right. right? So <laughs> Republicans have gotten very good at avoiding these comments and saying just enough to say, "Look, I don't think that way," but not right. enough that alienates their relationship with the White House or the administration. Um, I mean, there has to be a level of frustration from. Republicans, not just in that gang of six, but I think you had mentioned earlier in the show, Republicans who do genuinely want a deal, which I would believe is a lot of the Republican Party 
pro-business Republicans mm-hmm. are looking for this. You're seeing like the Chamber yeah. of Commerce having all of these events. Um, and some of these Republicans in tough districts in 2018, I can't imagine that deporting 800,000 people, many of whom have very successful careers and educations right now, would be a good strategy for them. Right. I was talking to someone who works in local politics in California, again, to like, you know, understand the lay of the land because it's a totally different feast than D.C. and Chicago and New York. Um, But he was talking to me specifically about Daryl Issa's district. And I was, you know, playing thought experiments with him, asking, like, can a Democrat take this seat when this district has voted Republican. A Democrat almost took it the last time. Right. By a half a percentage point. Right. But so what he pointed out is that it's been trending more Democratic over the last 20, 25 years, but Donald Trump basically came in and poured gasoline on that and is uh, expediting that process. And he was saying that they're in that district, California's 49th district, there's a lot of um, college educated whites and a sort of like population of wealthy Asian Americans. And he was saying that they are an interesting demographic to look at in this race because they don't subscribe to this rhetoric that Trump uses. They're not okay with uh, these, you know, comments that he's making, alienating complete communities and groups of people. And he was like, if they if one thing is going to push them, you know, the little bit they need to Mm -hmm. go Democrat, this is certainly going to influence that. We've talked a lot about the House. Um, uh, in the in the Senate, uh, there have also been some key retirements. Um, right, Bob Corker and Jeff and Flake. Jeff Flake. Uh, Jeff Flake, who is scheduled to give a major address to the Senate on Wednesday on the issue of fake news, he gave us a little preview yesterday on this week, um, talking about uh, Donald Trump's use of this phrase. You have authoritarians across the world using the term fake news to justify cracking down on their opposition or, or to uh, staunch legitimate debate, uh, that's nothing we should be proud of. In fact, uh, Jeff Flake says, uh, this is what some of the more famous authoritarians or dictators um, in history have done. I noted uh, how, how, how bad it is for, for a president to, to take what was popularized by Joseph Stalin, <laughs> the enemy of the people, to refer to the press. There you are. Donald Trump, Joseph Stalin. This is a Republican making this charge. Well, this is a Republican, but this is a Republican who had to retire because he wrote a whole book saying that Donald Trump ruined the Republican Party. So you have to keep in mind that he is not necessarily the view of the rest of his colleagues in the Senate. And I would point out that some of his colleagues in the Senate call us fake news. So it's not just around the world. But... um, Jeff Flake certainly is an important voice. He is raising it more and more now that he is retiring and doesn't have to worry about (laughs) um, re-election with Republicans. And I'm sure that Donald Trump will. We can expect some tweets after that speech. Oh, certainly. Yeah, you know it. He's giving that on Wednesday? Wednesday. Is that the same day I've lost track of the fake fake news news awards? Uh, 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 (laughs) They've been moved to Wednesday. Right. They've been moved to Wednesday. I I think there's still a question about whether or not Donald Trump will will actually actually do do it Wednesday. He may put it off again or he may never do it. This reminds me of the campaign. I feel like there were moments like this often that just 
never happen. Releases right. of I'll be giving a big policy. announcement right. on Monday yeah. of next week and then nothing <laughs> happens. Right. 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 Or it was always two weeks. Right, I feel like right, he always right. said, in two weeks' yeah. time. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and and then, remember, yeah. he was going to sue every one of those women oh, yeah. that accused him of sexual harassment. Right. He, they didn't sue right. even one of them. Not that he doesn't have a lot of lawsuits in his background. Right. Uh, but but uh, so... In theory, Donald Trump is going to give the uh, give out the fake news awards Wednesday evening. Jeff Flake has scheduled this speech for Wednesday during right. the day. Um, he might be a contender now. I was just yeah. going to ask that question. <laughs> right. So do you think he's looking at 2020, Alexi? Jeff Flake? Uh, a, a, I mean, a primary challenge against Donald Trump? No. No. I mean, I think... Not at all. Uh, I don't know. I haven't spoken to him or his people, so I can't say with certainty. I just sort of think, like, it's too soon for him to launch a bid against Trump. Uh, I, I don't know that he would be successful, and I think he knows that. Um, I think there's it's going to take some time for Trump's influence on the Republican Party and Republican voters to um, dissipate or, or decrease, and I don't think 2020 is... Mm-hmm. Be the year for that. Uh, Your take? I don't know if it's quite as hard. I don't think it's quite as hard of a note as you just said. That being said, he could not keep his Senate seat because his polling yeah, was so low right. with Republicans. Someone I do think we should watch for a primary challenge is John Kasich. He has very mm-hmm. much positioned himself as this um, more moderate voice. Every time Trump says something like the comment last week, he's out of the gate criticizing it. He's gone on sort of this tour with the Democrat governor of Colorado. Um, No, he's positioned himself as the never Trumper, who's still a never Trumper. But he is definitely, and I think because he doesn't have to work with Trump right now, he hasn't had to sort of swallow some of the comments in the way that even in the beginning, Jeff Flake maybe had to do. Right. Um, yeah, and he already went against him. Just someone yeah. to watch. Um, but he didn't, to point out, he went against him and did not clear very right. high numbers well, in the primary. Uh, right. Saying on the political front, um, over the weekend, we have uh, now a new, <coughs> pardon me, new governor of Virginia, Ralph Northam, uh, in his uh, uh, inaugural speech, I guess, with a... Um, an indirect comment, at least, about Donald Trump. It can be hard to find our way in a time when there's so much shouting, when nasty, shallow tweets take the place of honest debate, and when scoring political points gets in the way of dealing with real problems. If you felt that way, I want you to listen to me right now. We are bigger than this. We all. So there he is, Ralph Northam. Uh, but it's it's worth noting this was a huge uh, a huge victory for Democrats, uh, keeping that uh, governorship uh, in Virginia. Oh yeah, and not just the governorship, but the whole and House of al- Delegates almost mm-hmm. taking the House right, of Delegates. Right. Yeah, yeah. Yes. it right. came down Except to literally for the one yeah drawing a name right pulled out of a hat right. right. There was a photo of Northam I saw earlier on Twitter today uh, with his cabinet members, and it was majority women, which I was heartened to see. I didn't see it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So I think it's, you know, continuing the trend we saw of the candidates who ran and those who won in Virginia, right? Certainly more diverse than we've seen in the past um, across the country. And, and that's exciting. And there are many governorships up this year. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes. And uh, the Democrats projected good chances of picking right. up even more. Uh, we also have a new governor in New Jersey. I don't know whether he's sworn in yet or not, but Phil Murphy 
Yeah, um, I don't believe. And that I makes, uh, I saw this, pardon me, this morning, New Jersey will then be become the eighth, only the eighth state where Democrats do have the trifecta, governor, House, and, oh. and, and Senate. I it didn't used, see that. Yeah. It used to be like some 25 or 30. Right. Now it's only eight. Huh. Republicans have. Uh, hey, we're getting there. Yeah, but <laughs> but on our way back. Uh, and in the state of Maryland, uh, we have a another candidate announced uh, yesterday. Uh, she is running against Ben Cardin. Ben Cardin, Senator Ben Cardin, who's been frequent guest on this program, uh, was kind of his focus is mainly on foreign policy. Mm-hmm. He hasn't been a rock star in the Senate, but he's been a kind of a real steady voice, dependable voice. Uh, and uh, he is being challenged in the, I guess, in the Democratic primary. I guess so, yeah. By Chelsea Manning, of all people. We need someone willing to fight. We need to stop asking them to give us our rights. They won't support us. They won't compromise. We need to stop expecting that our systems will somehow fix themselves. We need to actually take the reins of power from them. We need to challenge them at every level. We need to fix this. We don't need them anymore. We can do better. <laughs> it's a strong sc- ad. Scary, yeah. scary music, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. And running somber. against them. I know. Yeah. Yeah. They. Yeah. She doesn't yeah. uh, identify who them are. It's right. a fairly bleak ad. It, yeah, it, it sure is. is. You know? I think we're all them. Right. It's the it's Washington, I think, in general. Right. Yeah. Don't you think? Right. right. But, yeah. But that's that uh, anti-Trump, anti-establishment. Right. Total anti-establishment. Yeah. I mean, I think it's the sense we saw even in some level at the Women's March. Right. Mm-hmm. People were like, we just elected Donald Trump. We need to take back. We can't depend on right. people we thought maybe would just take care. I don't know. Right. Yeah. You certainly wouldn't call that an uplifting political no. ad. No. Hi, my no. name is Chelsea Manning, and I'm here to represent all the people of Maryland. Right. No, it's, that know, seems rah. like probably a Ben Cardin ad. That music is <laughs> the scariest it music scary. ever. I'm old enough to remember the Obama campaign of hope and change. <laughs> yeah. and not they're coming to get you. Yeah. Uh, well, and she grows the, or joins the growing number of women who are running in 2018 for Senate, for House, um, which is definitely something that could help Democrats uh, and something we saw work well for them in Virginia, too. A record number. Right. Record I think number. it's more than All right. 400 total. Okay, so the big question of the day, of course, is who do you believe, the Wall Street Journal or the White House when it comes to the war on words over uh, Kim Jong-un? Now, um, so just, just the little background, you guys know, but just everybody understands that the Wall Street Journal interviewed the president at the end of last week, and their story, um, when they wrote the story, they reported that Donald Trump professes to have a good relationship with the leader of North Korea. And they said, wait a minute, does that mean you've talked to him? And he says, I'm not going to say, I won't say, but anyhow, the Wall Street Journal, according to the Wall Street Journal, the president told them, I have a good relationship with Kim Jong-un. The White House insists that they deliberately misquoted the president, that they knew he didn't say that, that he didn't say, I have. He said, I'd have. I'd. I apostrophe. Okay. Here's the tape. Peter, let's play it. And we'll... I'm just trying to find it. I can't oh, no. It. I had it earlier. I can't find it. I know. It. Okay. 
You buried that tape? I can't believe of all <laughs> yeah, tapes. Sorry, sorry. I'm to all right, it. well, Peter is. But, so I find it interesting that the Wall Street Journal is the one who's reporting this. I mean, you wouldn't think. You'd think he might accuse right. the New York Times or CNN of fake news. No, he's accusing the Wall Street Journal of fake news. Here is the audio. Listen carefully. I probably have a very good relationship with Kim Jong-un of <laughs> North Korea. Let's hear it again. I probably have a very good relationship with Kim Jong-un of Ooh. North Korea. My friend, Kim Jong-un. <laughs> Kim uh, Jong-un. I or I'd? If it's I'd, it's a very soft D. <laughs> yeah. But the probably is what trips me up. Because, yeah. like, it makes less sense to say, I probably have a good relationship with Eliza. It's like, I'd probably have. Like, I, I probably doesn't make sense to me. But it know. is a soft D We're if it is too. a D. He could have yeah. meant to say I'd and said I, but I, that right. doesn't mean the Wall Street Journal is incorrect because exactly. they don't know I don't think the Wall Street Journal. Neither one of them make a lot of sense. Exactly. That's the point. Neither (laughs) one makes a lot of sense. I don't think the Wall Street Journal is deliberately trying to misquote him at all. No, no, I don't think All right. Hey, guys, thanks so much for coming in. Alex Collins, USAToday.com, Alex McCammon, Axios.com. Have a great Martin Luther King holiday. Remember what it's all about. Come back and see us again tomorrow. This is the Bill Press Show.